Well, good morning. If you've uh, got a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 4 is where we will be. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. And if you opened your Bibles right in the middle, you'd probably find yourself in the Psalms. And if you'll turn back, I believe, three books, I think there's Esther, there's Job, there's Esther, and then you'll find Nehemiah. So Nehemiah chapter 4 is where we will be. Thank you for having me this morning. It is a pleasure to be with you. I've met Adam for the first time this morning. We've talked during the week with emails as well as Grant and the other guys. And uh, I am a friend of Brent Smalls. We work together at Southern Seminary, and it's that connection that got me in your pulpit today. And I just want you to know I find it a privilege and a responsibility to open God's Word and worship with you. I preach, you listen, but we all worship. And uh, what a good morning I believe the Lord has for us out of Nehemiah chapter 4. If you were in Sunday school this morning, uh, what a great sermon to follow a lesson in Second Thessalonians, talking about persecution within the, the faith and the people of God. We will build on some things that were taught this morning in Sunday school, and if it's not, I, I don't even know who I'm talking to here, but if it's not your practice to come to Sunday school at 945 on Sunday mornings, I urge you to come because the teaching is incredible and the fellowship is sweet. And so I would urge you to come to your church at Sunday school each uh, Sunday morning at 945. How about that, Pastor? I don't know. You didn't even ask for that, but uh, I believe in it. So Nehemiah chapter 4, let's, uh, let's turn there now. Nehemiah 4 is one of the most urgent and one of the most intense events in all of Scripture. Now there's a lot of urgent and intense moments in the Bible, but Nehemiah 4 is one of the all times. It's a, a historical event that we can date stamp about 445 B.C., and what we're going to read this morning really happened. This is not a story. This is not a fable. This is history. This is the history of God's people as recorded for us by Ezra, who we believe wrote the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so this is a historical event, and I want you to know that this historical event is commonly repeated throughout the arc of Scripture. You can see this type of scenario over and over again throughout all the Bible, and it finding its most magnificent manifestation in the New Testament. And we'll get there in just a moment. But let me tell you what makes up this event. There is, in Nehemiah chapter 4, really the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, there is a, an ancient foe. There is an extreme underdog, and there is a man of God's own choosing. That's what we find in Nehemiah chapter 4. An ancient foe, an extreme underdog, i.e. the people of God, and a leader, a strong leader that God himself has chosen to lead his people against this foe. And over it all, and in it all, and through it all, we see the mighty, sovereign God at work in this scenario. And I just want you to know this happens over and over again, beginning in Genesis chapter 3 and coming all the way forward to our present day. I think we'll see some examples of this. So I want us to be careful now as we turn to this historical event. I want us to not merely learn about this history. Okay, we, we, we don't do well if all we do here is come and have a history lesson and learn about some history that happened in 445 B.C. Rather... We've gathered here this morning under the authority of Nehemiah chapter 4 to learn from 
this history. And there's a difference in learning about history versus learning from history. And I want us to learn from history so that we in 2022 in southern Indiana and in northern Kentucky are changed by encountering God's word and are encouraged and strengthened and emboldened by seeing the sovereign God work 2,500 years ago, roughly, because he works the same way today. If you're a note taker or if you need a mental hook to help you follow where we're going to go through this sermon, let me just kind of give you a summary statement of what we're going to be about this morning. Okay, the main point of this text is like this. When God's people do God's work, there will be heavy opposition. But our God fights for us. Okay? So again, I'll say it. When God's people do God's work, there will be heavy, heavy opposition. But our God will fight for us. And so right there in that statement, I've got two points to the sermon this morning. The first point is this, when God's people do God's work, there will be heavy opposition. Let's dive right into Nehemiah chapter 4, and let's watch this opposition build from a couple of different venues, okay? So join with me in Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall... This is the wall around the city of Jerusalem. The Israelites have come back into Jerusalem after being exiled in Babylon for 77 years. They're coming back in and they're going to rebuild the city walls because they were destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's army. When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they receive, revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, the wall will break down and their stones will tumble. Nehemiah then prays, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. People are rebuilding this wall around Jerusalem. A city without walls is ultra vulnerable. And so that they can worship God safely in the temple that has been rebuilt in the book of Ezra, they're they're building the walls again around this city. And there is opposition from neighboring cities against this work. We've got Sanballat, he is the governor of Horan, a city about 12 miles to the northwest of Jerusalem at this time. And the text says that he was angry and greatly enraged. It's strong language. We don't read over those words lightly. He's not just ticked off. He is angry and greatly enraged. 
And then we're introduced to this guy named Tobiah. Well, Tobiah is the governor of the city of Ammon, and it is to the east of Jerusalem. And he mocks and insults the Jews, saying that their wall is going to be such a joke that even if a fox walked up on it, it would tumble. The question is, why are these two guys so enraged and angered about the buildings of a wall around a city? And the point is, their problem is the fact that the city of God will be fortified. And if the city of God is fortified, God's people within that city will be safe and able to worship the God of Jerusalem. And ultimately, their problem really is, in all of this, God will be glorified. And Sanballat and Tobiah are absolute enemies of Yahweh, God. And the bottom line is, these Israelites are getting caught in the crossfire between Sanballat and Tobiah and their angst towards the living one true God. So, they begin a cold war campaign. This is not a hot war yet. These, they're greatly enraged. They're angered. They jeer at the Jews, and it's a cold war where they voice threats and insults and mockings to these people. Well, what does Nehemiah do in response to this? This is very important. Nehemiah's response is found in verse 4. In the words, hear, O our God. That is nothing short of a prayer. And so in the moment when he faces this verbal Cold War opposition from these enemies of God, he immediately prays to God. He gives no response to the enemy. It's, it's almost like they're not even there. He does not engage with them and interact with them. Instead, his first course of action is prayer to God. No taunts of the enemy, just prayer. See, Nehemiah rightly sees that this battle is really God's battle. It's not his. In the flesh, he would say, this is my battle, they're attacking me. But in the spirit, in submission to the Lord, in building this wall, he understands that this is God's battle, and they are an affront to God. Look in verse 5, and, and I'll show you this. His prayer says in verse 5, Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger. This is God work. These taunts and these insults and this rage and this jeering, Father God, this is toward you. Don't let this sin against you go unpunished, is what Nehemiah prays. And so this is a biblical response to the people who are under attack when doing the work of God. The enemy hates God, and so Nehemiah appeals to God to deal with God's enemies when the temptation for us often is in our flesh to take up the matter ourselves. Let's learn from Nehemiah that when we're doing the work of God, it's a war against God when we face opposition, and we need to invoke that God to defend his name and his work and his people. Well, I want you to know, and I wish we had time, and we don't this morning, but if you combed through the book of Nehemiah, you would see that Nehemiah uh, has a spiritual discipline of prayer. It's almost like a reflex for him. 
And I would encourage you this afternoon, Nehemiah is a pretty quick read, to just work through this book and see how many times Nehemiah prays before he speaks, before he acts, before he does anything. This man is fixed on turning to the sovereign God who rules and reigns in his life. Well, let's see what the people do. So we know that Nehemiah asks the Lord to intervene here, but what do the people do? Well, in verse 6, Nehemiah says, So we built the wall. (laughs) And all the wall was joined together to half its height. For, and I love this phrase, the people had a mind to work for the Lord. These people are undaunted by these taunts from this pretty ferocious couple of enemies. They are undaunted, and under the leadership of Nehemiah, they've gone to the Lord and prayed, and now they get back to work and continue the task that God has assigned them. Now, I want you to know, Nehemiah has prepared them before this moment to have a mind to work. If you look back in chapter 2, verse 18, just turn probably one page over to the left, In Nehemiah 2.18, Nehemiah says this. As he entered Jerusalem, he came to Jerusalem to rebuild these walls. He said, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. Now that king is Cyrus the Great, another enemy of God's, who God inclined the heart of to allow Nehemiah to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild these walls. And so Nehemiah is saying, the good hand of my God has been upon me. And then he says, then the people say in response to him, second part of verse 18, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So Nehemiah has already cast a vision for these people. Look, we've got an assignment from Yahweh, from the God of Israel to rebuild the city walls around Jerusalem. The good hand of my Lord has been upon me. The good hand of the Lord will be upon us. Let's build. And then comes the opposition. They've already been prepared to serve the Lord in this task. So when they get the taunts, they are undaunted and undeterred by the persecution. And I love what it says. Just just a quick footnote here. It says they built the wall to half its height. There's some practical wisdom right there. They, they built to a, a minimum basic level of security. They didn't build it tall in this area and short in that area, and there's a gap in this area. No, there's a united people gathered together working in unity to raise a wall to a basic level of security while facing the torments and taunts of an outside enemy. Well, I think these people are living out a principle that we see in the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament and the Old Testament, they're all part of one Bible. And these people of God in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament, we all live under persecution for following and pursuing the ways and wills of the Lord. And the Apostle Paul gives us a great text in the New Testament that I think would be right to apply right here. Paul had been in Derby and Lystra, and he was stoned for proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrection. They took him outside of the city, and they stoned him and dragged him down to a point and left him for dead. And Paul's compadres, his disciples, if you will, were standing around him, mouths agape, wondering if they had just lost Paul. And the text tells us that Paul peeled himself up off the ground, my translation. (laughs) 
and said this, and here's what Luke says in, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells his brothers, encouraging them after he's been left for dead, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I, I think that's exactly what the Israelites rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem are experiencing. There's many tribulations, and they are entering the kingdom of God in that they're building a wall to protect them as they worship the living God in the temple. In the text, as, as, as Paul says, there are many tribulations, and listen to this, they must be experienced Boy, that feels like Sunday school this morning in 2 Thessalonians. Fire, tribulations, builds faith and love and unity for one another. So through many of these tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. That is the Christian life in a nutshell. When we're doing God's work, we must expect extreme opposition many times, and it must be experienced as we enter the kingdom of heaven. So when we are persecuted, we are not daunted just like these people. We pray to God and we continue the work. And so then through that process, we enter the kingdom of heaven. What is that, by the way, right quick? Well, I think for us, entering the kingdom of heaven is gathering for worship. We this morning are advancing the kingdom of Christ by gathering around the word of God and worshiping him for who he is revealed in scripture. I think we worship God when we advance the gospel through missional work, locally or internationally. We're advancing the kingdom of Christ. And I think we should expect tribulations during doing such. When we evangelize locally, when we disciple one another in the ways of God, we are advancing the kingdom of Christ. And every time we do that, we need to be ready to endure many trials and many tribulations. But we must be undaunted like these Israelites, and we must continue the work. Well, what happens next? Okay, that's, that's a good, that, that was a nice uh, uh, brief devotion, but there's a sermon that's going to be preached today, not a brief devotion. What happens next in this text? Well, look with me in verse 7, and we're going to see that the external opposition, it, it has arisen, but now we're going to see that it intensifies. But when Sanballat, verse 7, and Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. In verse 9, Nehemiah says, and we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So the enemies in the region, sometimes rival nations against one another, now they become allies. And you've got four rival nations, one from the north, one south, one east, one west. They've signed a treaty with one another to come against God. And in between them and God are these Israelites building this wall. So we've got more tribulation compounded on top of what they've already experienced. For you see, these enemies collectively hate 
God, and they do not want to see his will fulfilled in his people. And so what's the response of the people? Well, their first response, verse 9, we prayed to our God. We prayed to our God, Nehemiah says. Not I prayed, we prayed to our God. I think Nehemiah was a very effective leader in leading these people to turn to Yahweh in such moments. And so literally their offense is prayer. They didn't return the taunts. They didn't go out and preemptively strike. No, they prayed to God and asked God to frustrate the plans of God's enemies. Boy, we have something to learn here. This has got to be our dis discipline in this day and age as we serve Jesus Christ in building his church. The second response, look at this. This is very important. They prayed to God first, and second, they set a guard as a protection against them day and night. This is their defense. Offense is prayer. Defense is set a guard. There's an important truth that we need to glean from here, and it is this. Prayer is not abdicating responsibility. We pray and then we work. We don't work and then we pray, but we pray and ask God to act, and then in line with him and what we understand of him from scriptures, we work. And so we get a principle here that's common throughout all of Scripture. God is sovereign and man is responsible. And when we exercise our responsibilities in line with God's sovereignty, we worship him. And that's the Christian life, a life of worship. And so they are still engaged in wise works, putting forth strong effort to obey God's calling, but it comes after they've prayed. You know, they don't, they don't say, uh, let go and let God. It's a, it's a really bad, you've probably heard that in Christian America. Let go and let God. Uh-uh. That is not a theory, a, the, a theology that we are to embrace whatsoever. It's, it's really anti-biblical. Okay, they didn't pray and hope for the best and see how things turn out. That's a wrong dependence on the sovereignty of God. No, we pray, and then faithfully we act. We worship. Well, I want to give you a modern-day example of Israel rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. Jennifer and I have been. I've been twice. She's been once. We've been to a country in Central East Africa. You've heard of it, Uganda. And the last time we were there was in 2018. We had planned to go more times, but pandemic has shut down such travel there are some people in uganda that i would like for you to be introduced to this morning uh, uganda is a small nation and in the northwest corner there is a district called yumbi y-u-m-b-e yumbi district and right in the center of yumbi district is yumbi town and in yumbi town there is a small collection of very stout and steadfast christians they have made up what is called St. Paul's Pilgrim's Church. Okay, It's a church in the Anglican Union. Just for reference for you, that in, in our translations here in America, that's Episcopalian. But let me tell you, the Anglican Union in Africa is not like the Episcopalian Church in America. They are very faithful, very biblically oriented Christians. 
And while we might have a few doctrinal differences, if you or I got picked up and put in, in Yumbi district, in Yumbi town, we would have no problem joining St. Paul's Pilgrim's Church and worshiping with those saints. Our differences are on secondary and tertiary issues, not primary issues. Well, let me, let me explain Yumbi Town and Yumbi District to you. Yumbi is 90-plus percent Muslim. I mean dark Muslim. Sinister. Uh, mixed in with this Muslim population, the other 10% consists of uh, Roman Catholics, Pentecostals, and then there's this really strong vein, it's small, of ancient witchcraft. So you've got Muslims, Catholics, Pentecostals, and witches. Literally, witch doctors. They call them that. <laughs> and it is a very intense and tenacious place to live out the Christian faith. St. Paul's Pilgrim Church is made up of about 350 saints. I've stood in their pulpit and preached. They love the Lord Jesus Christ. They are happy. Uh, they are confident. They are resilient. They have been tried, and they don't quit smiling. There is a team within this church that's devoted to translating the Bible. Uh, the native language of the Yumbi people is uh, Aringa. There's about 100,000 people that speak Aringa, this language. And uh, beginning in 2001, they started translating the New Testament. And they finished 13 years later in 2014 with a production of the, the Aringa New Testament. And I don't know how many copies have been distributed in that region now. The team led by a guy named Charles, he's a very dear friend of mine. I Zoom with him frequently about every three months. They are now working on the Old Testament. They have finished 12 books. They are in the middle of different phases of, of six books as we speak right now. And uh, they would like to finish the Old Testament uh, in the next 15 to 18 years. <laughs> Can you imagine embarking on a task like that with that kind of time frame? And they are, Charles has been working on it from day one in 2001, and so he's looking at 30-something years of his life devoted to translating this book into a ringa so that those people can know Jesus Christ. Well, these Christians situated in Yumbi are severely threatened on a number of fronts, but the most predominant front that they're threatened on is that of the Islamic community. Uh, the Islamic Muslim uh, community is, is largely embedded into the government entities, into the police force, and they are in line with the cards and the, the sheiks, and it is a Muslim environment, need I say more. The church properties, many churches, there are other churches besides St. Paul's Pilgrim's Church, even the Catholic Church properties are subject to confiscation from time to time. Uh, many churches have been torn down with mosques rebuilt in their place. Uh, St. Paul's Pilgrim's Church was threatened with an annexation of their property. They were going to build a road right through their sanctuary where there was no road. Uh, that was fended off, thankfully. Uh, Christian schools in the area, and there's a lot of Christian schools in Africa, uh, in, in Uganda, they have been shut down and replaced with Islamic schools and Islamic institutions. And then Christians have endured persecution from within their own families. 
uh, for following after Jesus Christ, and the police and the government entities are constantly threatening them in their way of life. Sounds a lot like 445 B.C. Jerusalem, doesn't it? There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing. The enemy has always been after God and God's people, and it just looks differently from time to time, and here's the manifestation of it in our present day. But I want you to know, and I won't, I won't belabor it, but this is starting to bubble up in America. It certainly has bubbled up in Canada. We've got Canadian pastors imprisoned for opening their churches on Sunday morning during the pandemic. Really? We've got a, a church that we call uh, dear to us in, on the West Coast in greater Los Angeles that had lawsuits from the city of Los Angeles they had to defend for just merely gathering to open the Word of God and pray and sing and preach. And I think that's the tip of the iceberg. I think there's something underneath that's going to expand more so in America. And so we come to texts like this, again, not to learn about history, but to learn from history, because I think we are going to be much like the people in Jerusalem and much like the people of Yumbi, Uganda. And if it doesn't happen, adults, in our generation, it's going to happen in our children's generation. So we hear moments like this in Nehemiah 4, and we pass this on to our kids to get them ready to respond like Nehemiah and these Israelites responded. So, uh, I want to tie this to another New Testament passage. And I want to show you what the Israelites in 445 B.C. basically practiced and what we today need to practice. And it's again the Apostle Paul giving instructions to a church, this time a church in Philippi. And here's what it is. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You hear this work? Who's supposed to work in this text? Well, we are supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but we don't just get that done by ourselves. We cannot save ourselves, no matter how much fear and trembling we have. The most important word, not literally, but a very important word in that verse comes after that comma, fear and trembling comma, for, also known as because. It is God who is at work in you. So, we can say it like this, because God is at work in you, therefore you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? So it's God the great initiator, and we worship him by responsibly joining him in working out the advancement of the kingdom of God within our hearts, which we call salvation. Well, don't you think the Israelites rebuilding this wall want salvation. Yes, they want to be saved from enemies. Well, we need salvation from an enemy as well, and hold that thought for the end of the sermon, because I'm going to make a very vivid application of that truth. So, we must be deeply faithful to God, and we must be very practical in life. We pray, and then we work in advancing the kingdom of Christ in our own hearts, within our congregation, in our church, and in within a greater community in the world. We advance the kingdom of Christ 
after being faithful and dependent upon God. So, that's how our faith has bearing on our lives. It's not a mental construct. No, it's, it's practical, and it does flesh out in a way that we live and conduct ourselves in this world that God has put us in. We must bring God's perspective to our conditions on earth and continue in that understanding to advance his kingdom. And the people of Israel did this. Now, having said that, mm, having said that, we start to see that they struggle to do this. Okay? These are not humans that are, that are superior to us in being prone to fall into discouragement. <laughs> okay? We're going to look and see these people are just like us and we're just like them. So my next point under, uh, under this opposition is that internal opposition now rises up. We've had external opposition arise, and then it intensifies. Now we get introduced to the tragedy of internal opposition. Look in verse 10 with me. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. That's a pretty intense moment. External opposition abounds, and now we get internal, which has got to be more discouraging than the external. There is discouragement amongst some of the people who are building. Some of the discouragement is due to fatigue, and what do they do? They look up, and they see the size of the task before them. They see that they've only built it half its height, and look at all the work that's left. And these stones are burnt, and they're heavy, and we're getting tired and weary. They looked up from their work. And you know what that's like. Go dig a ditch or something, or plant seed your backyard, right? There's a lot of work. You don't look up and see the size of the task. You keep your head down, and you keep working. But these people didn't do that. And then we see that some have listened and are actually repeating the propaganda campaign that Sanballat and Tobiah had been throwing at them. And it's starting to penetrate, and they're starting to go, yeah, they may be right. If a fox did get up in this wall, it might fall. Look, who am I to build a wall? But then watch this. There are Jews in the region that are not building on this wall. And they come from, Nehemiah says, all directions. Wow. So Jews coming from outside of Jerusalem in the Judean area from all directions. And what do they have on their tongues? Ten times, it says, they repeat, you must return to us. You must return to us. <laughs> you must return to us ten times. 
Stop this building. Enough already. Okay, you've made your point. It was a noble tribe, but you must return to us. If you build this wall, these enemies are going to come annihilate you, and in so doing, they're going to annihilate us. Just return to us, and let's just go home and live. But that is not what God called these people to do. And if they listen to the internal voices, they will be sinning. They will defy the command of God to rebuild the wall around the rebuilt temple, around the reestablished altar. You know, one of the enemy's most common tactics within the church is to raise up this internal opposition. And it's, it's really tragic and it's really ugly. And it's really, uh, it's really to be warned of. The Apostle Paul says that these people are called false teachers. When, when Paul is leaving the church in Ephesus, he's giving instructions to the elders of Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 29, he says to them, I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples away after them. These Jews in the region that came to the wall builders are speaking twisted things. You must return to us, they say. And God says, you must build. So we've got false teachers, false doctrine being spewed from like people. And that happens in churches from time to time. And we've got to defend against us. Paul instructs church leaders or elders to protect the flock from such attack. Listen to Titus 1, starting in verse 9. Paul says that the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. We've seen that so far in Nehemiah, right? And also to rebuke those who contradict it. These people that ten times say, you must return to us, they need to be rebuked because they are speaking against God's word. He goes on to say, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. That's a New Testament church application of what we see going on in the Old Testament, 445 B.C. Jerusalem. The people of God must protect against false teachers who contradict God. And now Israel, uh, the, rather the, the Israelites, the, the people of Jerusalem rebuilding this wall, they not only have an external enemy of God to fend against, they've got internal false teachers who are teaching for shameful gain. They don't want their properties taken. They don't want to be caught up in this war with these enemies. They're shameful gain. They don't want gain for God. They want gain for self, and that's shameful. And they, these Israelites rebuilding the wall, need to rebuke these that are speaking to them. Meanwhile, the external threat intensifies in verse 11. The enemies say, 
we're basically going to infiltrate them and they will not know we are there until we kill them. So they've doubled down and this is like compounding for the third time. The external enemies are getting more and more dangerous. Well, what's Nehemiah's response? Got to go there every time. What is he going to do with this threat? Well, he didn't order a preemptive strike. Remember, his offense is prayer. Instead, he strategically placed people according to their clans so as to maximize unity and strength and effectiveness in persevering through this trial as they advance the kingdom of God in building a wall. So Nehemiah, in this moment, addresses the people with one of the greatest speeches in the Bible. Again, it's not the greatest. I don't know which one of those it is, but it's one of the all-time speeches in the Bible. And he says, basically, do not be afraid of these people. Instead, he says, remember the Lord. The Lord who is great and awesome. Remember him and do not count these people as worthy of your fear. And then in this strength, fight. Fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters, your wives. Fight for your homes in the strength of God. That's what he says. So they are still undaunted. If you're a note taker, here's something you've got to write down. And if you haven't been taking notes, at least write this one down, if I may say so. The truth that we have going on here is the fear of man leads us away from God. Okay? We don't succumb to the fear of man. And that's what Nehemiah says. Do not be afraid of them. And then what does he say? He says, remember the Lord. So the fear of man leads us away from the Lord. But listen to this. Here's the second part. The fear of God leads us to the Lord. And you know that's true in the Bible. The Bible's very counterintuitive to the human way. Uh, we are to fear God, and it's a beautiful and wonderful thing. It's not that he's scary and he should be fled from. And No, when we fear God, we run to him because we are in awe of him and we respect him and we know him to be sovereign and worthy. He is a father who will envelop us in his arms and he will protect us with his strong right hand that's talked about often in Scripture. And so the fear of the Lord, if these people will fear the Lord, they're going to run to him and continue the work that God has assigned to them. But if they fear man, they're actually going to run away from God, their only safe haven. And by running to man, by the way, they're going to get annihilated. They're not going to get patted on the head and, and, and allowed. No, they're going to still destroy them. The only hope that these Israelites have is to run to God. And I want you to listen to this this idea that the fear of man leads us away from the Lord, the fear of God leads us to the Lord, that comes from Psalm 118, verses 6 through 9. Write that down, and then let me just read these words to you and listen to these words and maybe meditate on them as I read them to you. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord 
than to trust in princes. You hear it? The fear of man leads us away from the Lord. The fear of God leads us to the Lord. And that's what these Israelites do as they continue to build the wall. And that leads us to the second point this morning. And I'm going to do this one a little bit shorter. So the first point is, when the, when pe- the people of God do God's work, there will be heavy opposition. The second point is, but our God will fight for us. And we see that in verse 15. Nehemiah 4, 15. One verse. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. (laughs) They do not succumb to the pressure, external or internal. They remain steadfast, fixed on sovereign God. And they say, he will provide for us. He will protect us through this great trial. So their offense worked. Their offense was to run to God. And God, not Nehemiah, not the people, frustrated, the text says, frustrated the plans of the enemy. So let me tell you this morning, brothers and sisters, (laughs) true protection comes only from God. There's nothing in this world that can protect us from the persecutions that we face for serving the Lord Jesus Christ. True protection comes from God. Deuteronomy 24, 20 verse 4. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to give you the victory. That's Deuteronomy chapter 20. Millennia ago that was written, and it's still true to this day. It's still the only true protection that we can have. God, in this case, commanded the work. God, in this case, equipped the workers to rebuild this wall. And God used their obedience, their discipline, their vigilance to deliver them. Because it was God who was at work in them as they worked out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Solomon says that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Yet the watchman does stay awake and watch over the city, right? But unless the Lord is doing it, it's all vanity. Well, let me show you next that their defense was successful. And we're going to let the text basically preach the rest of this sermon, okay? Starting in verse 16, we see that these defensive measures and the offense of prayer and trusting God is successful to the praise of God. Here we go, verse 16. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, and then underline this next sentence. Our God will 
fight for us. That ought to be a sermon title. (laughs) Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. That's encouraging. We have here something to learn. We trust the Lord to fight for us, and then we engage with the Lord in fighting for us. And that's called worship of God, not of us. We are worshiping God in doing such. Real quick, I'm going to give this to you for free. I want you to turn over to chapter 6, verse 15, and I want you to see the outcome of this wall project. We can't just leave it hanging there, right? So 6, verse 15 So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul. Now, here's how you know this is true history. We're we're getting date stamps here. This isn't just some story. And look what it says. We finished this wall how long? 52 days. (laughs) 52 days. Our God fought for them and enabled them to do a mighty, impossible work in human strength in 52 days and then look at this and when our enemies heard of it all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God God is glorified because his enemies see that he enabled his people to do his work in spite of their opposition that's beautiful And I want you to know that God doesn't change. And that's the God that we worship here today in 2022. That's the God that is presiding over the saints in Yumbi who are fighting to hack out Christianity in that district in northern Uganda. He is fighting for them, and they are smiling as they work for him. Well, Nehemiah is a picture of how we should live our daily lives. Just to make it really quick, when we are attacked on every front, we go to work, and we are sometimes attacked. We go to school, and boy, are we under attack. Have you seen what they're trying to do in schools in Florida? Okay, it's coming to a state near you, if it isn't already here. When we try to raise our families, when we try to live as a church, we will face extreme opposition. And we are to do the work of advancing the kingdom of Christ while we have our weapon in our right hand. And this is the weapon that we use, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. When we face opposition, we say, what would the Lord have us to do? And then we work accordingly. So I like to picture the Christian life as living with our Bibles in our best hand, our right hand, because it's the most important thing we will be about, and we work with our left. But we're never working like this. We're always working like this, personally as Christians and congregationally as a church. Well, let me conclude with this. Nehemiah is a 
precursor. This Nehemiah chapter 4 scene is a precursor to a greater manifestation of what we've been talking about this morning. I want you to remember what I said at the beginning. There's an ancient foe. There's an extreme underdog. There's a strong leader of God's own choosing. And there's a sovereign God presiding over all of it. Well, let me tell you this morning. Our God has fought for us in the most ultimate way. For you see, there is a, an ancient foe. His name is Satan, the devil, the adversary, the father of lies, the tempter. Ultimately, there's an ancient foe called death. And there's an extreme underdog, and he is you, and she, she is you, and he is me. We are underdogs in that we cannot fend against Satan. We cannot defeat death by any stretch of the imagination on our own efforts. We are hopeless. And we must, like Nehemiah, turn and pray to God. And what, what, what do we pray to God? We say, Father, save me. I can't save me. Would you save me? And you know what God says? God says, I will fight for you. Yes. And so, our God fought for us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God the Son took on flesh. God the Son lived a sinless life. God the Son fought against this devil in the wilderness right after his baptism. And what did he respond to Satan with and all the temptations that were thrown at him? The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. You'll find that in Matthew chapter 4. You can go read that. And so in this, Christ, God the Son, in the flesh, was without sin, though he was tempted in every single way that you and I were. Our God fought for us in that Christ hung on a cross, sinless as he was. He hung on a cross as a substitute for you and for me. We deserve to be on that cross, and if it was left up to us, we would die such. But God fought for us in taking on flesh and not sinning and being nailed to a cross in our place. But God wasn't done fighting for us because if we've got a dead Jesus, we're really still hopeless. But our God fought for us in that on the third day, the first day of the week, on the third day, Christ rose from the grave, defeating the ancient foe of death. He defeated the ancient foe of Satan on the cross. He defeated the ancient foe of death in the resurrection on the third day. And in our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our substitute, we have a God who has fought for us, and we are delivered from this ancient foe, and we are no longer underdogs. We are now children of God. So, as you face opposition in doing the work of God here as a church, as you join the greater universal church of Jesus Christ, and together we face the opposition and fight against the opposition doing the work of God, I say to you what Nehemiah said. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember Christ incarnate, sinless, crucified, resurrected, ascended, 
coming again. Remember this and be encouraged. And in that strength, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your gift of the word to us. We are thankful for you inspiring Ezra to record Nehemiah chapter 4 for us. Father, I pray that these friends of mine would not merely have a history lesson this morning, but they would learn from this history that they experience things that are common to your people throughout the ages and that they are well defended by no one but you. What a great God you are to fight for us and to sacrifice for us. Would you find us faithful to believe that and trust in that and then so work according to that for your glory and for our salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.